Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's another beautiful morning. It's not quite summer, uh, you'd have to say, but you can tell what day of the week it is because Prince Harry has turned up to court. Uh, he doesn't do it on a Monday because, of course, he's a bit busy. Uh, he's too busy flying in, uh, having celebrated one of his children's birthdays. He didn't bother turning up yesterday to the trial that he actually called for, uh, where he's trying to prove uh, that he is single-handedly being fought and battled by the media en masse. He hates the media. Uh, he hates anybody doing anything about him. He hates anybody writing anything about him. He's quite happy to break into everybody else's privacy. He's quite an- interested in uh, observing his own privacy and actually breaking into that and revealing all about what he does in uh, bed, what he does at night, what he does during the day, what he does while he's asleep, what he does while he's awake. He loves all that. He loves to be centre of the uh, universe in his own little world. He arrived at court this morning uh, during Julie Hartley Brewer's show. We will bring you updates, as he says, uh, them on the, uh, uh, in the dock, as he is this morning, uh, at the Royal Courts of Justice. Prince Harry versus the media. It's all so unfair, he's going to be saying. It's all so terrible. They've all been doing terrible things. They've been invading my privacy when it's my right to invade my own privacy. But it will be very interesting to see whether he can actually stand up to some pretty hard questioning, tough questioning, uh, which will come from the barrister representing Mirror Group and newspapers. We'll bring you that uh, as soon as we know it, of course. Coming up first today, Alex Phillips joins us, former Brexit Party MEP. We'll ask her about why Britain is still the centre of the universe when it comes to investment from around the world. People still want to put money into Britain. People still think the European Union uh, is a lesser bet than the uh, British public do. And there's lots of other things to talk about as well. AI, for example. Last night, Tom Newton Dunn interviewed uh, a a Downing Street advisor who said that, you know, the important thing about AI is to make sure it doesn't end the human race. Well, I'd say that's quite important, wouldn't you? Also, of course, uh, we'll be talking about ITV. We'll find out what's going on there. Uh, There's some hearings going on in Parliament today before the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. Uh, asking people what exactly was going on at ITV when Philip Schofield was doing what he was doing and why on earth have you not safeguarded some younger people uh, who might have been traumatised by whatever it was he was doing. Laura Dodsworth is here as well. We're going to talk about dangerous dogs. Jonathan Gullis joins us as well. 
So much to talk about this morning, so many uh, things to do. Also, Rishi Sunak's vow to not just stop the boats, but to slightly reduce them coming. Uh, it reminded me of a scene of The Departed, uh, where they said, well, we're not quite going to disrupt um, the uh, and finish off the gang culture in Boston, but we're going to marginally disrupt it for a few minutes. That's kind of what Rishi Sunak wants to do uh, with the boat smugglers, of course. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call. We'll take your views, we'll take your calls as well because of course your opinions matter to us more than anybody else's and we care what you think that's why we are uh, the fastest growing uh, radio station and tv station uh, on the dial that's what we are it's as simple as that this is talk tv let's get it on Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. It is the one place to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And people are beginning to realise that in their droves, particularly after the uh, sort of cringe fest that was Holly Willoughby yesterday, saying, are you okay? Are you? Are you still feeling fine? It's all been terribly difficult for everybody. Let's talk to Alex Phillips, advisor to the Reform Party, of course, and a veteran uh, of many uh, fights with slings and arrows and all the rest of it. Alex, very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Isn't it good to see Prince Harry uh, finally turns up for his own court hearing, having not decided to turn up yesterday, much to the judge's chagrin. Uh, I'm really looking forward to him being grilled uh, by a professional barrister who isn't in the pay uh, of, uh, you know, the the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's uh, PR campaign. Yeah, well, he doesn't make life easy for himself, does he? He doesn't know how and when to pick his battles. And, you know, the thing is about the media, by and large, in the print world, there is a code of honour. If you go about parading your own privacy, then they think, fine, we're perfectly entitled to hold you to account and also stick our noses in there. But he wants it all one way and not the other. Although I would say in his defence, the accusations he is levelling against uh, the Mirror Group newspapers, which a number of other celebs are also levelling, are pretty serious. You know, this goes back to the phone hacking scandal, rifling dustbins, the sort of journalistic practices that thankfully have been put to bed. But it's interesting, isn't it? Well, they're all allegations and most of them are going to be thrown out. And I think the Mirror disputes every single one of them except for one thing which they did, which they've already apologised for. Right. And he he, it's it's interesting that he's so exercised by this and yet we'll talk about his, you know, frostbitten member in a book and the lauded details of drugs taking, which now has him in trouble with, um, you know, border forces in America, Homeland Security. So, I mean, you know, he's bitten off far more than he can chew and he's going to be going up against some pretty aggressive lawyers today. Mm. And that's going to involve a lot of probing, a lot of challenge. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Well, because as I said to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, you know, him staying away yesterday is proof of his sort of, you know, rather supercilious attitude towards the rest of the world. He thinks he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. He's used to having people at his beck and call. You know, when he forgot his polo gear that time, uh, he's just got some to drive it to his private jet uh, so that they could put it on the plane for him. And he was, it was the only thing he had to remember to do, but he forgot to do it. But he was able to make a call, not like you and I. You know, if you and I get to the airport and realise we've left our luggage behind, we just have to get on the plane without it. Yeah, no, exactly. He has lived a life of entitlements. And it'll be interesting, actually, to see what his multi-million dollar team of agents and PR supremos and, you know, little journalist friends and brand ambassadors mm. and advisors and you know, this whole, whole cohort of Hollywood bigwigs that they've now employed. It'll be interesting to see what they're planning to do with this court appearance, because no doubt 
they'll be there using every single sentence, every single development as feeding the whole narrative that poor Harry is some kind of victim. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised if there's going to be Netflix part two, you know, what happened next with Harry and Meghan. It'll be all the behind the scenes. Oh, Meghan, isn't it bad? Look at what these awful lawyers have said. Holding up the mobile phone while she goes, oh, yeah. in and also, I mean, for, for a guy who says that it's very dangerous for him to come to Britain because people are trying to kill him uh, and that it's very expensive and, that, you know, he needs all sorts of protection while he's here. He comes here an awful lot. I mean, he's only just been here. He was only here about two weeks ago and now he's back and he's got something like six different court cases going on in the same building. Yeah, well, he's, he's, he's an ambassador for climate change as well, isn't he? And he seems to spend a lot of time crossing the Atlantic on yeah. private so, you know, I mean, nothing about Harry adds that. We know that. The, the, the wider public, both here and across the pond, know that. Journalists know that. And they're, they're essentially doing a whole lot of damage to their brand. Now, if he had done things in a better order, if he had said to the media, look, I want to challenge you on the amount that you've been digging about my life and the harm it's caused, because this goes back to his relationship with Chelsea Davy. Interesting, actually, isn't it? When they start probing around in that relationship, I can imagine smoke coming out of Megan's ears and that face going <laughs> and the skin going an unhealthy pallor of green. Um, but, you know, if he had addressed that and then said, I want my privacy, sodded off to America and got some privacy, then fine, I think he would have a case to make. But as the South Park spoof so, so beautifully represented... <laughs> He seems to want to tell everybody every gory detail of his life, live like some kind of Kardashian, and then say, sorry, my private life isn't for sale. Mm. Well, it is. You have just sold it for millions of yeah, pounds. I'm afraid so. It's going to be glorious, I think. It's going to be quite amusing, and it's going to keep us all occupied for at least two and a half hours or so uh, while we do this show. Let's talk a bit about um, ITV, speaking of uh, invasions of privacy, because uh, yesterday's Holly Willoughby speech was not exactly Henry V at Agincourt, um, but almost as good. Oh, I don't know what that was. I mean, it was weird. <laughs> she, she sort of started off making sure we were okay. We've all been through such a traumatic period. What? Because Philip Schofield is having it off with some young guy behind his wife's back. Mm. I mean, what, is this supposed to be the, you know, the aftermath of some sort of television terrorism? Yeah. I just wonder when more emerges from uh, the Philip Schofield scandal, which a lot of people seem to think there's more yet to come out. How she's going to ramp up the rhetoric then? Because she was almost crying on yeah. camera, shaking and comforting us. And it's like, OK, right. OK, yeah. It was brilliant, wasn't it? You know, are you OK? Was the first thing. And Piers Morgan was very, very good last night. He played the, the, the Holly Willoughby uh, clip and then played the clip from the morning show uh, when they announced that uh, the guy who had been found guilty of sexual harassment was actually leaving the show. And it was almost identical. It was incredible. Oh, it's just it, it actually shows you quite how phony this um, this stuff is, doesn't it? How they all look like your best friends sitting on the sofa, aren't we? Happy, da no, yeah. happy family. You know, you're this morning crew. We're all here for you. We have a wonderful time behind the scenes, and it turns out it's a pretty toxic environment mm. to work in. Everyone hates it. There's been cover-ups, things swept under the carpets, grooming of young people. I mean, it's. I mean this is it. I mean, when they and, but they won't stop. I mean, Kevin O'Sullivan said this last week. They won't stop referring to it as the family and how lovely it is to be in the family. And I mean, if anything, it's like being in the Corleone family, uh, where you might get assassinated at any point out on a, a fishing boat in the middle of a lake in Nevada. You know, that's the kind of family we're talking about. Well, she's desperately trying to save herself, isn't she? It's the darling of daytime television. Yeah. She wants to sort of maintain her position and have none of the uh, uh, excrement stick to her, so to speak. Yeah. But 
everyone's there thinking, well, come on, if it's all coming out that, you know, Philip had at least one young lover who he had given special privileges to on the show and everyone was talking about it, how come Holly seemed to be deaf, dumb and blind yeah. this whole time? I mean, it's suddenly well, saying, I nobody that. believes a word of it. Nobody oh. believes a word of it. But it does become a slightly more serious issue, doesn't it? When today, for example, the Culture, Media and Sport Committee uh, in the Houses of Parliament starts quizzing executives from ITV about exactly what has been going on. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, the world that people work in when it's in, in media, broadcasts, so on and so forth, it is pretty ruthless. It does have this sort of lovely veneer to it on the outside. But behind the scenes, you can get a bullet between your eyes at a moment's notice if you're not performing, if your rating's not good, if you fall out with the wrong person, if the talent decides they don't like you. Mm. It's, it, it can be a very cutthroat industry to work in. And yet this morning presents this you know, wonderful, uh, aren't we so innocent and pure as the driven snow and wholesome? Um, and, and yet, it, clearly, <laughs> that was a dreadful place to work with lots of people quitting their jobs over a number of years. Yeah. And yes, these execs need to be held to account because some of the things that they've done on their own show when they fed the narrative when when people were accusing senior figures in politics of being and, and, and entertainment of being paedophiles involved with Operation U-Tree. They were happy to sit people on the sofa and, and make all of these allegations, regardless of the fallout in those people's lives. And they were doing all sorts of things behind the scenes themselves. Well, exactly right. And I mean, the, th- the thing that I found absolutely fascinating was a piece that was written at the, in Glamour magazine of all places at the weekend by a former news editor who basically said they weren't ever allowed to meet the uh, the Holly and Phil personas, uh, they were never allowed to actually be with them at all. But stay where you are if you wouldn't mind, Alex. We're going to go straight live now down to the High Court uh, where uh, Ollie uh, whitfield Mircic is on, on stage for us. Uh, Ollie, what's going on? Yeah, so Prince Harry has just arrived within the last 40 minutes. We saw him pull up in a navy blue Range Rover and got out of the car a huge jostle in the media scrum as all of the camera photographers were trying to get that perfect shot, the flash of light as he arrived. Prince Harry was asked a number of questions by waiting journalists, but he didn't answer any of them. And then he was greeted at the door by his celebrity barrister, David Sherborne. Now, Mr. Sherborne has represented a number of high-profile celebrities, most recently Johnny Depp in his legal battle at the High Court, as well as Colleen Rooney in the Wagatha Christie trial. We understand now he's probably inside a room speaking with his legal team, going through that last-minute preparation before the case resumes at 10.30 this morning at the Rolls Building, which is part of the Royal Courts of Justice. This huge case in which the Prince and three other claimants are claiming that the Mirror Group newspapers over a period of two decades had engaged in illegal information gathering, including using private investigators, listening to people's mobile phones and listening into their answering machine messages. It's going to run on for seven weeks. The drama has already unfolded in court yesterday. The latest drama is yet to happen, though, when that prince is put under cross-examination, which could be brutal for him later on today. Uh, Someday my prince will come as they might say. Alex Phillips is with us. We'll come back to you, Alex, in a moment. I've got to talk to you about uh, the migrant policy that this government is currently pushing. But first, of course, we'll also be checking in uh, with the um, Culture, Media and Sport Committee in Parliament. Uh, They're going to be quizzing ITV's Group Director of Strategy, uh, who is one Magnus Brook. They'll be asking him about what on earth has been going on uh, in Ivory Towers ITV. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV, currently running live, and we will go there if it gets interesting. Uh, the committee, uh, which is the Committee of Culture, Media and Sport down at the Houses of Parliament, is currently quizzing uh, the uh, ITV Group Director of Strategy, Policy and Regulation, a bloke by the name of Magnus Brook. Uh, there's also going to be executives from Channel 4 and Channel 5 turning up. Uh, they're having a pre-legislative scrutiny session about the media bill, which is currently in draft form. But of course, uh, there will be an opportunity to ask questions about Philip Schofield, about Holly Willoughby, about what on earth happened to safeguarding and what on earth happened to telling the truth at this morning on ITV, which seems to have been forgotten about. We're also talking to Alex Phillips, of course. She's with us right now all the way through until uh, 10.30. Alex, let's talk a little bit about um, Rishi Sunak and his uh, trip to Dover yesterday. He went down there to assure us that uh, he hasn't actually stopped the boats yet. But don't worry, uh, the numbers have gone down by 20%. Nobody's really buying that. I mean, it's about he's about as believable as Holly Willoughby at this point, isn't he? Yeah, I think the problem with this is there was reports in the Telegraph today. I mean, in fact, the Telegraph seems to have a lot of things being said to them by the Home Office regarding uh, positives that this government is supposedly achieving. Mm. Um, but there was a report today that France is now intercepting 50% of boats crossing the Channel. Well, why not 100%? And why is it not? Why is it taking so long? There was a chap, actually, a people trafficker, who popped up on um, the Today programme a couple of weeks ago, basically saying that countries like France were aiding and abetting the exodus of people. Mm across the continent and over to Britain, um, which is quite believable, frankly, because you would certainly need a few friends in the border force and the gendarmerie to be able to somehow, you know, magic a dinghy out of a sand dune and, and into the ocean right. when it's actually it's a fairly long stretch of coastline. But with drones, it can't be that difficult to detect. Um, but the problem is that we're not processing people quickly enough. People are lingering around in hotels at the cost of £7 million a day uh, for two years right. or more. They're complaining they have to share rooms and the food's not good enough and this that and the other and you think well hold on if you're really fleeing persecution you don't mind having any sort of safe roof right. over your head and frankly there are a load of people who come here as migrants legally and quite happily live six people to a house and to, to earn yeah. money so it, it does sort of, you know, strike me as a little bit precious by some of these people who are trying their luck. Well, it's now, I mean, I think we, we can readily now admit it's a racket. The whole thing is a racket. It's a racket from beginning to end, from the people who are bringing the boats now from Turkey, we're told, uh, bringing them all the way to uh, the coast of Normandy, putting people in them who may or may not pay them a bucket load of money. If they don't pay them, they'll pay them once they get here and start working in the black economy. You know, there's sex trafficking going on. There's drug trafficking going on. There's probably gun trafficking, you know. And everybody knows that once they get here, because the Home Office refuses to, to actually process them, because they don't want to, um, they're here for good. Well, it's actually worse than that, Mike. I mean, look, 70% of asylum applications are granted. 70% of those people coming over on the boats are not asylum seekers. No. That is clear. That's borne out by the numbers of Albanians, of people coming from the Punjab in India and mm. so on and so forth. Um, and actually, a lot of those so-called asylum seekers have had their applications rejected in numerous countries already. So Britain really is a soft touch. And unless we start saying, OK, you really have to prove that you're in desperate need of our accommodation mm. and otherwise go home mm. and actually get people deported swiftly, then it's going to be regarded as somewhere where you can come over. You might have to wait a year or two, but then you just disappear into the system right. but talking about the amount of imported criminality which is definitely happening um the one area that nobody's looking at is this huge uptick in indians coming over mm. and you think well 
border? What's going on in India? Why all of a sudden are so many young men from the Punjab arriving in the UK? I have a very strong suspicion that this is going to be connected to some extremist groups that are currently not being spoken about, but are thriving in the UK. And uh, we're actually in a very dangerous situation unless we really get a hold of this. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because, as we know, for example, we, we keep being told by the, the sort of loony left brigade that, oh, there are no safe routes for them to come. That's why they have to come on the boats. Well, that's news to the 1.2 million people who came here in 2022 completely legally on student visas and on work visas. Oh, yeah, actually, you know, it's the student spousal visas that's the worry. Uh, mm. A couple of years ago, we were issuing about 13,000. It's gone up to 138,000. And the UK is one of the only countries other than America that doesn't require an English language proficiency test to get a student visa. Right. So you've got about 20 odd UK institutions, which as long as you get someone to sponsor your application, it doesn't matter whether you can't even say hello and goodbye, mm. you're in the country, then they don't actually attend the courses and they're bringing families with them. I mean, it's a nonsensical system. And actually, like I said, it's being exploited by some pretty unsavoury characters right now. And this is going to be the next big story in the UK. Um, but like I said, the difficulty is we are a soft touch on immigration. And when the left wing talk about, oh, we need safe and legal routes, I'm like, from where? Yeah. If you say anybody at risk of persecution has a safe and legal route to the UK. To yeah, the, it's called the airport. Right, two, two thirds of countries in the world outlaw homosexuality in some form. 14 at the moment are engaged in some sort of hostility, whether it be civil unrest, whether it be full-blown war and conflict or, or terrorism or living underneath an oppressive regime. And then there's about 14 billion people who are in the most dire poverty as well around the world. So if you suddenly turn around and go, right, everybody, everybody who might qualify under our asylum system should have a safe and legal route, you're basically saying to three quarters of the planet's population Britain would love you to come and join us. It's not feasible. And nobody puts meat on the bones with this argument. Where are these safe and legal routes? Are you going to stick one in Turkey with that nutter Erdogan using migration as some sort of geopolitical weapon against the West? Are you going to stick it in uh, some sort of African country, mm. which is uh, equally going to see the advantage of saying to the, the West or saying to the UK, right, you need to give us money for X, Y, and Z, or we're going to literally lift up mm. the floodgate and in there will come. I mean, no one seems to have any idea of how this would actually be operated. Oh, yes, it makes a nice little uh, a, a nice little catchphrase, doesn't mm. it? To make people bathe themselves in moral rectitude, but it's completely unworkable. Yeah, of course it is. Absolutely right. Now, just one final thing uh, to upset the Ramonas of this world. Uh, Britain kept its place last year as the top European destination for investment in financial services, defying fears that a post-Brexit city of London would lose business to its rivals overseas. Read it and weep, folks. Um, once again, uh, the people who blame Brexit for everything um, have got it wrong. Yeah, well, Mike, there's something very important to make about this announcement, which is when we signed that ridiculously oppressive, hideous withdrawal agreement, the oven-ready deal that was Theresa May's repackaged Ramona tapped with the EU, the one area where we didn't get a deal was in the financial services sector. That's the one area where there is nothing arranged with the EU, and look at what's happened. Meanwhile, in the sectors where we are bound still by EU competition regulation, by harmonization of tax and so on and so forth. You've got car manufacturers saying this deal needs to be torn up or we're not going to invest here. You've got AstraZeneca saying Britain is not open for business. That's a UK pharmaceutical company which is moving to Ireland, which is in the EU, and many other areas of heavy industry which frankly cannot cope with the 
high energy prices, on top of that, the high levels of corporation tax, on top of that, the inability of the UK government to give any sort of meaningful state aid to critical sectors. So what does this prove? Actually, what we needed all along was a no deal Brexit, because once we've done that and can take care of ourselves, and deregulate and create an atmosphere and an environment where people want to invest, you build the playing field and guess what, they come. So we need to renegotiate that withdrawal agreement ASAP and basically tear it up and say we start afresh, we're out of the EU and we're getting even further out. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Great to talk to you, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Alex Phillips, advisor at the Reform Party, former Brexit Party MEP, of course, as well. We're told that uh, my lord, Prince Harry of Herbert, uh, sorry, or is it Prince Herbert, formerly known as the Prince of Harry? I can't remember what he's called now. Duke of Sussex, uh, Duke of Woke, the Wokester. Um, apparently, he's answering to Prince Harry. Is now on the stand. He's now in court. He's now answering questions. He's under the cosh, as it were. Uh, we'll bring you more coming up on Talk TV. Fast talk, street talk. Mike Graham fighting the good fight with all his might, providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk, hot talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Laura Dodsworth will be here very shortly. She's got plenty to say and there's plenty going on. She's going to be talking uh, about all sorts of things, including the wokists, of course, the latest attacks from the woke, uh, all about AI going to kill us, apparently. Apparently, uh, if we let these uh, computers get too, too important, uh, they will do away with the human beings altogether. I'm not sure I'm going to buy that. Uh, we'll see. Uh, also, she's going to talk about pregnant men on the cover of magazines. Uh, you might have heard Piers Morgan talking about that last night. Uh, and are the English even real? An attack on Anglo-Saxonism. She wants to mention that as well. Also coming up in this hour, Stephen Wolf's going to join us, Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. He's got plenty to say about the current state uh, of Rishi Sunak and migrant policy. Yesterday, Rishi Sunak said that they're going to stop the boats, but they haven't managed to stop them yet. In fact, ever since he said he was going to stop the boats, there's been about another 7,500 people who have come here illegally on those small boats. Now they're coming here to go on strike, as they did last weekend in that Pimlico hotel, uh, because they don't like the idea of having to share a room. It has reached epic proportions of idiocy, I have to tell you. Keir Starmer's been speaking about his new uh, oil and gas policy, of course. Also, uh, we'll keep an eye uh, on the meetings that are going on uh, before the Department of Media, Culture and Sport, where ITV executives are getting uh, the, the going over from MPs about what on earth they think they're doing at ITV. For heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. Prince Harry, uh, as he's asked to be called, uh, is also up on uh, the stand in the uh, courts of justice. We'll bring you the latest from that as soon as there's a break in proceedings. We'll tell you what he's been saying, what he's been being asked. Uh, how about this from Matt, who said on the subject of D Day and the 79th anniversary I'm with the last caller. I've just got home from Normandy, had to leave early due to kids and school. We go there every year and take our World War II Willie's Jeep with us. It's a great shame we don't celebrate it enough. It's still living history. I only met four veterans this year, less and less every single year. We must talk about it more. I mean, it is an incredible story. And as I said, I was there at Easter with, with my children, uh, my two teenage sons, who were, like me, incredibly moved by what we saw on uh, Omaha Beach and what we saw in the cemeteries and what we saw and imagined it must have been like uh, in 1944. We made them watch um, uh, Saving Private Ryan the night before we went as well, because it's an incredible, incredibly moving place. Um, and it looks exactly like it would have looked in the 40s. Kind of ironic that the people who are coming here now on the small boats from that very country are coming from those same beaches, practically. 
coming the other way. Let's talk to Stephen Wolfe, Director for the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Stephen, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Um, I, I, I'm not going to you know, dwell on it massively, but the 79th anniversary of D-Day uh, does bear some recognition, I think, and, and kind of ironic that, that we fought for freedoms and fought for you know, uh, freedom from fascism and freedom from the Nazis and freedom from, from a terrible invading force, only now to have to be putting up with another one, uh, which is coming in kind of by stealth. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we, we, well, the question is whether it is by stealth now, Mike, because we actually watch it and monitor it from drones from France. After all, we've paid uh, over £400 million to the French so far to secure their borders. We've provided fencing, security in terms of individuals, and we're effectively paying for their own border force to protect our own borders mm. from there. And they're not doing it. Yeah. And it's very clear that when Rishi Sunak says he stopped the boats, he hasn't. We can all see that with the fact that thousands are still coming over. And we, there may well have been a small decrease, which enables him to say, yes, the numbers have reduced. But that's because the summer rush, where it seems to be that the mass of uh, people smugglers get more of them over, hasn't yet started. It's about, yeah. It will do in the next couple of weeks. Well, that's it. And I mean, if there is anything like a reduction in numbers, it's got absolutely nothing to do with anything that Rishi Sunak has done. Because the fact is, if we don't stop them um, being rewarded for getting here, then of course they're going to keep coming. In some ways, I don't even blame them for coming, because if you were given the opportunity to come to a country like this and people talk about a perilous crossing, it's not actually that perilous, given that most people make it uh, without even having to get wet until they reach the other end. Um, you know, they're going to they're keep coming because the rewards massively outweigh the risks. Well, certainly, and notwithstanding the fact that there was that ridiculous strike outside the Pimlico Hotel where they were being asked to share four to a room. Mm. There are many hotels across the country. I've seen those in Wales, for example, some in the north of England, where they're really relatively luxurious for people to stay in. So when they're contacting their friends back home, they're simply saying to them, listen, I did pay the smugglers 12,000 to 13,000 to come over here. Yes, it is a loan. But actually, when I get here, the accommodation's not too bad. I've got medical treatment. I do get dentistry. Uh, and I will be uh, analysed very quickly now because that's exactly what Rishi Sunak is doing. He has increased the speed in which people are being assessed. And actually, what we've noticed in the numbers, the speed in which certain countries, particularly Iran and Iraq, are being granted asylum almost automatically. Yeah, exactly. And the point about people being given asylum so therefore their claims must be legitimate, is also a shibboleth because it turns out that they've been here for so long by the time they get granted um, asylum that they're here, they, they're granted it purely and simply because they've been here so long. Well, this is it. There are three criteria of what is called grant of right to remain here. The first of them is what we all expect. It's that you're fleeing torture under the UN Refugee Convention. And there's a small number which is connected by what we call the European Courts of Human Rights. Mm. But the vast majority of those who are granted at the first decision is based on a discretionary route by the Home Office. It's the Home Office rules. And I think basically there has been a change in the procedure, although we've not seen it necessarily through the reports that are sent out to us from government. But I do think there's a, a change that is enabling more of them to be granted discretionary rights because they've been here for so long. Mm. Also, what about this kind of expectation that many on the left seem to have that we should take all these people because they want to come? I don't accept that. I never have accepted it. 
Well, it is very clear that there is a very strong element of those who support the rights to uh, for migrants to come here and asylum seekers to claim rights, that they should have as many as possible. Mm. What I find fascinating is I recently watched a, a YouTube video of an individual going onto one of these marches where they say, uh, well, migrants welcome, and asking dozens of them would they put them in their own homes, right. and none of them would. No. So oh no, it's all like, oh, I've not really got much room. I've I've only got a one bedroom flat, you know. But I think it's nice if they can all come. You know, what's the matter with these people? Yes, and what they seem to think is that it's perfectly acceptable for them to be able to come here and work and get accommodation. But what they also never accept is that the accommodation that they're moving into is already in overcrowded areas in cities where the prices of rents are rising because the volume of people is increasing, and we've seen that in population. Mike, let's look at this very clearly. In 10 years, we've had five and a half million new people yeah. in the UK, and we're building a quarter of a million houses a year, and it's not even touching the sides of helping people reduce the prices of accommodation, either through rentals or through buying. No, exactly right. We've got a study here today that says that half of young Albanians, in particular section of Albania, where an awful lot of the migrants come from in the north, uh, shows that half of them, uh, aged between 17 and 22, want to leave Albania and come live in Britain. Well, that's not surprising. I mean, we, <laughs> we have similar figures coming from many African nations. And certainly if you asked or most of those in Afghanistan whether they would like to live under the Taliban or come here, yeah. I think the answer would that would, they would come here. And that is why we need to accept what the, uh, the head of the, uh, the refugee section of the European Union's commission said, is that 60% of people coming into Europe now are actually economic migrants. And it's about time that governments across the globe started to amend the UN Refugee Convention yes. to accept this. Well, that is the point, isn't it? Because when it was originally instituted, as indeed when the um, uh, European Court for Human Rights was instituted, you know, the world was a very different place. You couldn't get across the Mediterranean uh, in record time. You couldn't just sort of set off from North Africa and land in Italy and Greece and, and then make your way across to Calais and then make your way across. You just couldn't do it. There was no way to do it. Now, people are doing it willy-nilly because they've seen an advert on TikTok or because they've seen their brother managing to do it, so they want to go and join him. Well, absolutely. And, and, and they're also in contact by email and they're contact by WhatsApp and they're contact by FaceTime. So they have very clear abilities to be able to use technology to move down the routes from Afghanistan, Iraq and Iran across to mm. Turkey by land to be able to come over the sea from Africa, which is very clear. Uh, we also seeing massive rises of Indians and, and, and coming down as well into Europe and across to the United States, where they're beginning to become big numbers of the three and a half million that have gone across the border there. And then, of course, you occasionally get them coming across from Spain mm. and Morocco into Spain. So there are very clear routes in which they can get into. Uh, and, and one that we're beginning to monitor is what's happening in Ireland, where they're coming in into Ireland and yeah. then crossing up to the north of Northern Ireland and then coming back into the UK. I think that's going to be a bigger story over the next few months. Absolutely right. And isn't it ironic that one of the complaints that the uh, Pimlico uh, No Passport Brigade had in the hotel was that the Wi-Fi wasn't very good? <laughs> you know, you go, sorry, oh, you're missing the last episode of Succession or something. Yeah, I, I, I never forgot the first time I went to a camp in Calais in 2000. And, and 15, mm. uh, just as we're about to open it, and there were three tents, one tent for medical, one tent for providing charges for their laptops and mobile phones, and the other tent for internet. Brilliant. So two of the three tents were basically to help them keep in contact and only one for health. Yeah. 
Extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary stuff. Stephen, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. He's the director of the Centre of Migration and Economic Prosperity, of course. Coming next, uh, we've got Laura Dodsworth. She's got a great many things to say about all sorts of stuff, including the march of AI, will it kill off the human race? And of course, uh, the lockdown papers uh, that we had from the Daily Telegraph this week. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, a place of calm, uh, a place of civilization and a place of hope. I hope you're okay. Laura Dodsworth is here. Are you okay, Laura? I'm okay. Good. I was I was really enjoying our little chat in the break. Yes. We always we always have the most fun actually we when we're off air. We shouldn't and say I'm, that though because then people go. I wish they wouldn't yeah, do that. Do you know what? I'm going to share a bit with them. Go on. Then. I am. I go am. On. I was saying that today. I, normally, I like to talk about two stories with you mm. and it's I mean I've been coming in for nearly two years because I, I love it yeah yeah wow. I, still, I just still have a class like to that. the building by the way yeah. anyway I come in and we we chat about things in depth for yes. half an hour it's great but there's just so much I want to mm. talk about today we've got five stories I'm saying I'm gonna have to keep it pacing yeah. I need a clock I need, need a, clock. a clock and you pointed out I could use my watch or, or my phone yes, or your Mr. Phone. sarcasm mm. I said okay but what time do I finish so I could plan it mm. You said, I'm not going to tell you, Laura. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. You don't need a clock. I can wind you up, yeah, he said. It's that, true. listeners, is the real Mike Graham. That is the real Mike Graham. Mischievous, fun, contemptible. <laughs> anyway, well, let's start. Let's talk about AI because I'm astonished at the number of people who keep telling me, without me asking them, how humanity is going to be wiped out mm. by computers because they're that clever. They're going to learn how to kill us. Mm. Well, let me um, let me wind the clock back a yes. little bit. If you remember the Y two K, I do. Okay, as for those listeners who are too young to remember this, there was a huge panic in the build up mm. to two thousand. Yes, because it was thought that as all the clock numbers switched to zero, computers would yeah. fail, and this was really thought to be an existential crisis. I mean, for people humanity. were warning us at the time. I remember I was working at the Mirror at the time. That the planes would fall out of the sky, yes. right? That yeah. all of our computers in the office would, would cease to work, that we wouldn't be able to get a paper out. I mean, all manner of rubbish was coming. Oh, out. your banks wouldn't work, you wouldn't be able to get any money. It, basically, nothing would work and we could all die. Yeah. Um, the, the clocks ticked over, all the zeros right. um, arrived on our digital displays and nothing happened. What's amazing is that in 23 years, we've gone from computers are so stupid, you're mm. going to die, to computers are so clever you're going to die <laughs> now look ai does seriously pose some threats yeah it does and and you know we can talk about that although i want to race through quite a lot today mm. perhaps we should do a really decent ai chat maybe we should next week yeah but but i don't think the threat it poses is what we're being told it's as though the media and policymakers are absolutely addicted to existential threat to get our attention mm. now it's funny isn't it that um the people behind creating AI, the big tech leaders, right. they've known this is coming for quite a long and time. And they're the ones that are making all the noise about it, aren't they? Yes, they've been working on it for years, though. Why weren't they raising this alarm six months ago or yeah. last year or five years ago? This isn't something new that's literally yeah. just popped out the woodwork. i tell you why. It's because they all want a seat at the table. Do you know why policymakers use fear, Mike? They use it to soften you mm. up for regulation. Yes. So at the moment, regulation is proposed all around the world, even one world um, boards of ethics for right. AI. Well, this is and, it. I was listening so to an interview. And so they're trying to scare you to yeah. get you ready for more regulation. I mean, the guy who was being interviewed last night on First Edition by Tom Newton Dunn, uh, Matt Clifford, who apparently is part of the AI task force at Downing Street, was talking about sort of something similar to the nuclear non-proliferation, I can't even say it, non-proliferation treaty that countries should enter into because of the dangers of AI. You're kind of going, so what, you're now saying it's a bit like having a nuclear weapon? Mm. Is it? 
Really? Well, it comes with enormous opportunities and threats. For all those serious existential threats it might pose, I can, you know, I think we can be quite clear that um, enemies of this country, enemy states, won't stop developing AI. Mm. We'll be keeping pace with it too in terms of military defences right. and its absolute capabilities. I think that the threats that AI pose to us right now. Um, would be things like automation, but you know people are already losing their jobs to automation. That's, people have been saying you know, this as well since the 50s. People who are worried about that need to stop going into the supermarkets that only let you do a self-checkout. Yeah. Um, but a, a more serious danger, and one we could get our teeth stuck into more another time, will be the threat it poses to manipulation mm. psychology. AI is a brainwasher's dream, but I've got a funny feeling that's not what they're going to be regulating against. So I would say to people, if you've seen all these scary headlines about how it's a mass extinction yeah. event, best to just have a little, uh, take it with a pinch of salt, mm. be a sceptic, nothing wrong with being a sceptic, and remain open-minded, yes. and look into it for yourself. Yes, and stop worrying about everything. I was talking to somebody last night um, on uh, Jeremy Carl's show about climate anxiety that people are apparently suffering from because um, Sadiq Khan has now got his people in uh, City Hall to have a sort of climate um, um, committee to advise people on how to avoid being anxious about the climate. And you're going, well, what are you anxious about exactly? No, that's, they don't want you to not be anxious. That's why there are so many of these. They're actually grief networks, climate mm. anxiety networks. Interestingly, from the outside, I mean, I was looking at them um, as research for my new book, Free Mind. From the outside, they look a little bit like 12-step uh, programs, but mm. they're not 12-step programs. There's no, there's no saviour or redemption at the end of this. No. There's no freedom from anxiety. But this is the language you. that people well, talk about. They are, it? but they want you to be anxious because yeah. they're still trying to soften you up for net policy, yeah. for net zero policy goals. Um, they love this. If right. they didn't love this, they wouldn't have embedded climate crisis into pretty much every because part of the Because here's the curriculum. cure for your anxiety. We're going to charge people £15 to drive a car in London. And you'll and be cold because you won't be able to afford heating. And then you'll heating. feel better about and it. And you won't be eating meat yeah. anymore. And, Holly and we're going to go backwards and you're going to be neo-feudal serfs. And Holly but, Willoughby will talk but about healing. But you'll like it because you're anxious. Yeah, exactly right. Thank God I'm not anxious, is all I can say. Um, Shall we talk about uh, EasyJet? Ah. Uh, a two easy jet, or should that be a Z? Sleazy jet. Sle so I'm, I'm actually a little bit disappointed because I am one of these easy jet fans. Yeah. I love the fact they've flown me around the world hop on, so hop cheaply. Off Absolutely. EasyJet are introducing pronoun badges for the cabin crew. So there are going to be about, I, God knows where they've pulled these from, 25 different pronouns really? for the cabin crew. One for every destination. I mean, one thing they've already got rid of is they don't say, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, now. They right. say, welcome, everyone. I don't really like that because I am a lady, you are a gentleman. Yes. Why can't they say ladies and gentlemen? Yeah. And the occasional really confused person who has no idea and needs a pronoun badge. Yeah. I don't know. Um, they probably brought their own lunch anyway. The other, the other thing is, though, that um, I don't need the cabin crew's pronoun because no. pronouns are for when you refer to somebody when yeah. they're not in your presence. Yes. I'm not really talking about the cabin crew all the time. No. And if I were, they're not going to hear me and it doesn't matter and what pronouns And if you go, excuse me, could I get a drink? That's which is what, more or less what I say on a plane. You don't know their name. You don't need their name. You just say, excuse me, don't you? Well, you, he, you, you, said, you wouldn't say, excuse me, Z. No. You wouldn't. You'd, I wouldn't say to you, excuse me, he. If somebody if went, why haven't you read what I've got on my badge? I'd be like, well, I can't see your badge. You get back to me. It's just posturing and pandering to the latest BS. woke noses. And, and I think they're going to find it doesn't really go down that well with their customers. No. People don't really care. They just want to get on a plane and be driven somewhere yeah. cheaply and I just said, I, oh, I said this this morning. All I care about is the plane takes off on time, gets there on time, and you know, it doesn't crash. 
Mm. And I'm happy with that. More trans madness. Go on. Glamour magazine posted what might be one of the most unglamorous covers known to man. Yes. And I say man deliberately, although it's a woman's magazine, mm. because it featured a. Are they allowed trans to call man. it a woman's magazine? There it is. Oh, probably not. Um, it's probably, it's probably not probably a woman's a magazine, magazine. For glamorous people. For people. Though, I mean, it's a look, people magazine. No, there's only one called People magazine. Pregnancy's great I, and beautiful, but I'm not sure it's glamorous. Not anyway, in this case. This is a trans man, mm. um, i.e., a woman. One, but one thing I'm going to say about this is it's this, a woman. This person and Glamour magazine don't it's say it's a woman. Don't say pregnant man. They're saying pregnant trans man or pre- pregnant tran- trans. It's a woman. Wait, yeah, but it's a marginal improvement on how we normally are. Obviously, you cannot be pregnant if you're a man. No. And I'm afraid that means that Glamour. Uh, normally a magazine for women who look glamorous has joined the rest of the enemies of common sense and sanity. Yeah. Of course it's madness. A man can't be It's pregnant. a ludicrous picture. What's um, going on above the belly? And, you know, each to their own. But I, I'll be interested to know what this does for their magazine sales, that issue. But mm. I do I do object to it a little bit because it's constantly... The wokest are all bright, our, It's constantly in our face. Yeah, yeah, but are there enough of them to keep I don't magazine think there are. sales up? I don't think there are. There weren't enough to keep Bud Light no. stocks See, afloat. Bud Light are about to go bust. going to be bust light because they're going to go out of business. You know, we put them into, I think, when well, last time you were on Plank of the Week, we put them in the Planks uh, area. And now it's gone from bad to worse. And I think they're going to probably crash the company now as a result. Go woke, go broke, yeah. as they as they say. Mm. Talking about more wokery. Yes. Um, see, look, I'm so pacey today. Pacey. This, isn't, this isn't your normal. You're going to go too Laura's quick at this rate. Down. You're going to be too quick. All right, I'll slow I down. I had that last night with Jeremy. He said, <laughs> you don't have to rush. And so I just launched into this long preamble about this story. And then suddenly we ran out of time. Well, of course, you said you're not going to tell me when we finish your reminder no. about the time, did you? So no. I'm, on, I'm on my toes. You're, you're doing well. Me guessing. This is it. Um, okay, well, let's go to story number four out of five mm. and we'll, we'll slow down and gather our thoughts yes. a little bit. Although you were not going to want to stay on this one too long. Okay. The, um, there's a department at Cambridge University. It's the Department for Anglo-Saxon History and a couple of other pieces right. of history. It is, um, well, it, it, it's, I should have said at the once prestigious Cambridge University because I'm not sure how prestigious it is anymore. They are teaching that there's no such thing as an Anglo-Saxon identity. Mm. And the reason they're doing that is not This is the Department of Anglo-Saxon History. Yes. Which is a separate department just about Anglo-Saxon history. Yeah. Which is saying there is no Anglo-Saxon identity. And the reason they're doing the reason they're doing this isn't a genuinely nuanced investigation into our history. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What these people really want to do, I mean, let's make no bones about it, is they want to tell you that being English isn't even real. They want to tell you that you are nothing, your identity is nothing. Can you imagine them saying, oh, yeah, no, Maoris aren't real. They're all um, indigenous Australians. Yeah, they're not really real. Mm. Or what about, I know, let's pick pick Venice, because Venice isn't a a country anymore. It was an empire for a thousand years. It's just part of Italy. You know, that Venetian empire, they're not really real. All kinds of people have gone to... To Venice in mm. the past, all, all of that history, architecture, culture, paintings, music, that's not real because mm. there's no such thing as Venetian. Right. You can't say there's no such thing as Anglo-Saxon identity in can't. history. Uh, particularly if you run an Anglo-Saxon history department, which is specifically designed to discuss Anglo-Saxon history. I mean, you would be, I mean, I could understand it if you were, say, the, um, the Habsburg history department to say no 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 those anglo-saxons forget about it they weren't real because you're on the other side but if you're actually on the same side of studying anglo-saxon history how can you say it doesn't exist it's essentially what they're doing isn't it you'd think they're talking themselves out of a job and of course one professor did was resign because of the apparent in quotes inherent whiteness yes in the course really it's almost as though Ofcom would I'm not... almost speechless. Yeah. I'm almost speechless. Almost. It's almost as though Ofcom would be so ridiculous as to say that saying the royal family balcony was terribly white uh, was not something they would bother with at all, which, of course, is what they did yesterday. Well, th- this is actually the problem, you see, that our institutions, including once prestigious world-class universities, who I'm not sure they hold that status anymore... Want I really to don't chip think away they do. at everything so that you don't know who you are. You don't know what biological sex is. You don't know what being English is. You don't know what you are. What they want is a kind of a cultural year zero. Mm. They want to rebuild our country in some ghastly image of their own making. They want to chip away at everything you hold dear, everything that makes you who they are. And that's why we have to call it out. I don't yeah. even need to know what the ins and outs and of the And you know what the is. worst part of it Telling is? Telling you that Anglo-Saxon isn't real yeah. is nonsense. And what it's really about is chipping away mm. at you. You're not real. You're nothing. But we'll you know what's the worst thing? We want you. The worst thing about it is that it's all being done as a kind of vanity project by the virtue signalling left. Because they're not actually doing it because they want to do away with Anglo-Saxonism or they want to do away with the white race. They're doing it because they think it makes them look good, which actually is the worst reason. I'd have more actual you know, time for them if they wanted to commit genocide and kill everybody. But they don't. They just want to look better. It's a kind of menticide, though. It's not genocide. They are trying to undo you psychologically. They're trying to undo your pride in your nation. They're trying to undo your own sense of identity. And I do think it's more than just a vanity project. I think they hold us in contempt. I think they even hold themselves in contempt. Mm. There's so much self-hatred from the people that now populate our institutions. They don't like the English. They don't like themselves. Mm. No, it's a sort of self-loathing scenario isn't it and that's as I say the most depressing part of it because it's only really because it's like an exercise they don't really care about the history they just think that these are the things they should be seen saying 
Well, think very hard before you send your sons and daughters to Cambridge University. I wouldn't send my kids to any university, quite frankly, at this point. I've already told the 18-year-old not, not to bother, just go to work. Uh, that's kind you of know, how I feel. Start paying me back all that money you owe me. It's how, it's how my children feel too, but I, I would feel... Um, I, honestly, my heart would sink if, if I had a child bright enough and dedicated enough to go to Cambridge University. I'd be begging them not... I'd be on You'd my be knees You'd be literally wasting your money. You'd think, be wasting your money. Please don't please don't waste your money and go to a university that tell you, tells you your history isn't real and sex isn't real. What a waste of time. Mm. How, I mean, what confidence can that give you in anything they teach? Yeah. Talking about teachings... Mm. Final story Go about on. half hour. How am I doing for time now, Mike? You're doing really well. You've got oh, loads. Have I? Yeah. You won't even tell me, though, will you? I no. bet I've got about five minutes. Something like that. Something like that. Okay. But, you know, it's a funny old thing. It's a funny world because before I used to work in broadcasting, I don't say radio anymore, broadcasting, I'd never thought I'd have said the words when I said to somebody, how much time have we got? You go, 30 seconds. Oh, loads. 30 seconds, <laughs> not a problem. You can say a lot in five 30 seconds. Five is minutes an, 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 is an age. You could, well, write, you could read half of War and Peace. If we if we get bored at the end of this and we're finished, we'll get our books we never out, get shall bored. we? No, be hardy we never do. Okay, so some um, new research has come out. It was um, all over the news yesterday. It's a great article in the Telegraph. Yes. The Institute for Economic Affairs has published a study mm. which has um, been authored by scientists from John Hopkins University, yes. one of the world's leading medical universities, and um, Lund University yes. in Sweden. And what they have established is that wait for it, drum roll, lockdowns don't work. Yes, amazing. So they reviewed, um, they assessed nearly 20,000 studies. Mm. From that, they found over 30 that met the criteria for robustness. Mm. And then from that, there were 22 that they could analyse um, together yes. effectively. And they've looked at stringency indexes, non-pharmaceutical interventions, shelter-in-place measures... Broadly, what they found is that when um, lockdowns were introduced, that reduced mortality by 3.2%. Mm. In this country, that would equate to about 1,700 lives mm. being saved, that's across England and Wales, by virtue of locking down. Now, that's good, of course, to have saved some lives. But... In a typical year, we might lose, say, 20,000 mm. lives to flu. Yeah. And that number, of course, pales into insignificance. And, of course, in the first year... Compared to the Imperial College modelling yes. that said that if we did nothing, and we were never going to do nothing because people voluntarily changed yeah. their behaviour, 500,000 could die. That was or our good friend over, Neil Ferguson, wasn't it? Mr Pantsdown. Mm. Or over 200,000 could die if we took measures. Yeah. But if we locked down really, really hard, it could be reduced to 20,000. Well, in the end, it turns out right. to be 1,700. And, of course, the fact that this sort of modelling that the lockdown was based on is wrong is exactly why... The the World Health Organization, as late as 2019, was saying you mustn't rely upon that kind of modelling for decisions at yeah. this scale because it doesn't really work and neither do lockdowns, which come with harms. And What's, now we know what those harms are, of course, because we're still reaping, unfortunately, the benefits of that. Yeah, and it's still too early to count mm. the costs. I mean, um, excess deaths are running at disastrous highs. We have seen so many stories now about cancer backlogs, um, mental health yeah. impacts, the terrible effects on education, gosh, you and I have lived through that as parents, and also the impact of being in um, a you know, greater level of public debt, the impact yeah. on the economy. Mm. So it's still too early to fully count the It costs. is. One of the stats that jumped out for me was the mental health 
um, sort of percentages, people, numbers of people who were reporting having mental health problems. And in the 16 to 24 age category, it went from 3% to 23%, which is massive, isn't it? Yeah. Because that um, is the age, I think, that was the most badly affected by lockdown. It is, it is tragic. I get really upset even hearing mm. um, stats like that because I know people whose mental health was decimated in lockdown. I, I think people, my own children suffered. Mine too. And I had people talk to me about feeling suicidal yeah. because of the lockdowns. And the, the problem is that these risks were known. Mm. Even Chris Whitty said very early on that you get two types of deaths in a pandemic, the direct and the indirect. Mm. But generally, the government didn't talk about the harms of lockdown. It talked about um, the fact that there was no option. It's what we had to do, and it would save right. lives based on this rubbish modelling. Um, but it, because it if talk, Ferguson it didn't talk had been right, the harms though, of lockdown. but if Neil Ferguson had been right, and you were sitting there as the Prime Minister thinking, crikey, if I don't do this and half a million people die, you know, that'll be an absolute disaster. So, so I sort of have a little bit of sympathy for the politicians. I know I shouldn't have, but I do, because I think they were led down the garden path by these ridiculously useless so-called behavioural scientists. Strong leaders and strong governments should not have been led down the path like that because we had pandemic plans. Mm. We had people with both qualitative and quantitative experience of different types of disasters, including pandemics, who knew what the right course of action was. I interviewed one of the UK's foremost disaster and recovery mm. planners, Professor Lucy Easthope. I interviewed her a state of fear. She's involved in body storage plans. She said that for every lockdown body, she would be planning another four deaths over two to five years from cancer backlogs, obstetrics, sepsis, domestic violence, mm. multiple, you know, variety of causes. Right. These risks were known. They were known to the UK. They were known to the World Health Organization. And I think what's particularly bitter looking at this research now is our own government didn't provide any form of cost benefit analysis for the lockdowns. I remember calling for it at the time a group of Tory backbencher rebels mm. formed the COVID recovery group yeah. and they put pressure on the government to produce a cost benefit analysis. We didn't get a cost benefit analysis until the 30th of November. It did very little to enumerate the risks from lockdown. Mm. It basically put forward that there was no other course of action except lockdown because the consequences were too severe. It assumed its measures were working without good evidence that they were working. It was basically a thin paper exercise to justify continuing restrictions. We did all that without a cost-benefit analysis. Mm. Now, this was a very complicated real-world model. But the, their efforts were thwarted, I would say, by fear. Of course, I would say that. They themselves might have been frightened of the virus. But I think we've seen in those leaked WhatsApp messages that what ministers and policy makers, decision makers were also worried about was their own career. Yeah. You know, they were worried about political miscalculations. They were probably worried about the inquiry to come. And they took what... I think, appeared to be the most politically expedient decision. They pandered to the media that were clamouring. Oh, unbelievable. Many they of pandered whom, of to course... people who were scared, but they didn't do the right thing. Yes. We have a counterfactual. We have Sweden. We've seen how much better Sweden performed without locking down. Yeah, and also those media who were the most vociferous about the government not doing enough. Did they report this uh, lockdown report that came out yesterday? No. Would you have seen it uh, reported in Sky News or BBC? No, you wouldn't. It was done here and it was done at the other place that we don't talk about. And that was it. Nobody else touched it. And the Telegraph, of course. But nowhere did you see Beth Rigby saying, oh, maybe we got it wrong. 
And it's appalling because, you know, people have to have some moral courage to avert disasters like this. If, if people don't want to face up to the disaster, to the terrible act of self-destruction we inflicted upon our own nation, what you can guarantee is it will happen again. It might happen again in our lifetime. It just happens over and over and over. You have to admit when you've made mistakes. Of course you do. It's a because virtue. You have it's to a also, virtue. And I'd like to hear some people saying we'll never do it again. I'd like to hear that. They haven't said that yet, but I want to hear them say it. I agree. It's no, it's no comfort, of course, for the people whose lives were ruined no. by lockdown. And I don't think it's any kind of sweet vindication for us. Um, no, I said this yesterday. I don't feel any sense of satisfaction for, for being right about it. But I do express some satisfaction that we questioned it. You know, I'm glad we did. But I'm not particularly glad that, you know, they were wrong and we were right. I don't really feel like that. No, but always be sceptical. Always. Always keep an it's open It's the only mind. way I know to be. Always interrogate the data for yourself and don't always believe the fear-mongering headlines, which is why, you know, bring us back to the first story. Right now, if you're being told that the problem with AI is mm. it poses a mass extinction level threat, it probably doesn't. It probably means there's other some kind of some other kind of threat afoot behind the scenes, which is the, um, <laughs> it being regulated in a way you don't want it to be yes, regulated. almost certainly. Well, guess what? We're out of time. So basically, we've managed that perfectly. Perfectly. Without even You've knowing. literally finished, haven't you? <laughs> Have I? You've got nothing left to say. No. A bit like Prince Harry. I, I walk but out you know, here Prince still Harry. jabbering. I'm chatting to the producers on the way yeah. out. I'm chatting to security on the way out. I don't of stop. Me too. I don't stop. You should hear the absolute crap I get when I get home. But that's another story. Anyway, uh, thank you very much indeed. Laura thank Dodsworth, you. once again, fascinating discussion. Uh, coming up later on in the show, Molly Kingsley's going to be here, uh, who was branded a terrorist. She's on the front of the Telegraph this morning as well. Absolutely unbelievable. We'll talk about D-Day too. Uh, this is Talk TV. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, loads of you got plenty to say today, so we'll try and get to as many of you as possible. Uh, Tony Tucker from Barrow says, Mike, how many of those behavioural scientists on lockdown were communists, just like the WHO leadership? Well, that's Susan Mickey uh, was certainly a former member of the Communist Party. She might say now uh, that she's not. But I don't think uh, uh, it's right to say that Neil Ferguson's a communist. He's just an idiot. Simple as that. Let's talk to Jonathan Gullis, Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North. Always a man uh, to reckon with uh, when you need to talk about important matters of state. Jonathan, a very good afternoon to you. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, very well indeed. Um, now, uh, it comes to something, doesn't it, when you've got people coming here from uh, other countries illegally and having a look around and deciding, I know what I'll do, I'll go on strike, because that's what everyone else is doing. So the old Pimlico lot decide to go on strike because they don't want to share a room with anybody. I mean, what is going on out there? Well, it's embarrassing, isn't it? Let's be honest, Mike. You know, the fact that people are upset that the room is uh, too small or the bathroom's not very nice or the Wi-Fi isn't as strong enough as it should be, it's just utterly insulting to the hard-working British taxpayer yeah. who slogs away day in, day out, who pays their bills, pays their taxes, and now is having their school places taken, their NHS backlog added to, uh, hotels taken up, which is destroying the hospitality and retail sector of many of our communities, as we have in Stoke-on-Trent with two of our hotels, one directly opposite the railway station, undermining a, a, a £20 million levelling up project at the Goodyards. It's it's just embarrassing and insulting. And these people, particularly these young single men who have come here to try and jump the queue, need to be put on the plane and sent home as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I know Rishi Sunak means well. I know he wants to stop the boats, but he's not really doing it. 
And a lot of people today very critical, Jonathan, of his speech yesterday in which he was kind of lauding the fact that, you know, oh, we've managed to stop 20 percent of the boats and the French are now stopping half of the boats and all of that. The fact is that it's still coming. They're still coming. And as long as uh, we continue to afford them a reasonable sort of chance of living here, they're going to keep coming, aren't they? Well, look, Mike, I think the Prime Minister does deserve credit on the Albania plan because that clearly seems to be having some sort of impact with the fact we're seeing a 90% reduction in the amount of Albanians attempting to come over yeah. and 800 uh, illegal migrants and foreign national offenders having been returned back to Albania. But of course, I think the people are going to be very sceptical until they see a plane leave to Rwanda and they actually see that flight take off, which I think will have a huge deterrent factor. Yeah. I think that rightly we will be judged whether or not our success or our failure is on that very single area of the policy. Yeah. But I think people also need to remember that Sir Keir Starmer can talk as tough as he wants. This is a man who literally campaigned to have free movement as leader of the Labour Party. Mm. This is a man who said he would process people quicker, which just simply means that we'll have more people accepted and more people staying here, and encourage the smugglers to send more people over. As well as, obviously, say he wants to cooperate further with France. Look, I'm a huge sceptic of how much the French are doing. It's literally taken British boots being back in Calais something we've not seen since the uh, 16th century, right. in order to try and get some sort of grip on the situation. But sadly, I think the French are all too happy to watch people get to the northern shores and try and make the attempt to come over so they can say, it's not our problem, Governor. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? I don't wish to conflate the two things. But the 69th anniversary of D-Day today, uh, we're talking about people coming the other way and how we can't apparently stop it. Well, Mike, my great-great-uncle who's still alive today, Alan Gullis, is a D-Day veteran, and I'm very proud to be able to, to say I have a relative who was willing to sacrifice his life for our freedoms. And like you say, those brave boys who went across from all of our Commonwealth nations and allies, you know, to make sure they liberated Europe, uh, you know, and on this special day, it's important that we always remember that ultimate sacrifice that was made, the turning point in the Second World War. And as you say, the idea that the, uh, the French or the European Union can't do more to stop these boats from even launching. Yeah. Or, let's be quite frank, just dragging them back to shore yeah. if they've launched just off the uh, coast. Right. You know, it, it's, it's just mind-boggling. And it just says to me that there's complete ignorance to the actual severity of this problem. Yeah. I mean, there is, it's said, much, much more immigration, illegal immigration coming into Europe as a general rule. You know, overall, it's coming because... That's just the way of things. But but clearly there is a massive problem, not just in Britain, but all over the world in terms of, uh, you know, mass migration. I mean, I was reading a story the other day. I was mentioning it on the show um, that we're also apparently paying now for some Afghan refugees to be put up in hotels in Pakistan because they've, they've managed to get out of Afghanistan to save their own lives, which is fair enough. Um, but they're trying to get to Britain and because they can't get here and they can't be processed, apparently the government's paying for them to live in hotels in Pakistan. I mean, it can't go on like this, can it? No, no, I agree with you, Mike. At the end of the day, we are a compassionate country. Half a million people have come here as refugees, asylum seekers since 2015. We've seen that with Afghanistan already, Syria, Hong Kong, Ukraine, uh, to give you some examples. And I think that the idea that this country isn't warm and welcoming is for the birds. It's just people who like to talk down our great country. But you're right. There is, sadly, some asylum shopping that's going on yeah. in the system. And, you know, these are my words. Those are the words by the Labour MP for Bury South, Christian Wakeford. Oh, sorry, Christian Wakeford, yeah. of course. Wakeford, sorry, uh, it's an easy mistake to make. 
an easy mistake to make. You know, someone who wants to virtue signal at every opportunity. Yeah. You know, those are his own words that he made in a debate in the House of Commons. So the idea, you know, I agree with Christian. It's just a shame that he lost his spine in the process yeah. and wanted to jump ship to save his own skin, as he would see it. Yes. Uh, but ultimately, I think that, you know, let's be perfectly frank. People coming to our French shores, uh, coming to the French shores, trying to come over to the UK, are simply trying to uh, game the system. They're, they are legal economic migrants. They should be claiming asylum in the first safe country that they arrive upon. That was always the expectation and the understanding of how asylum worked. And it's something that Baroness Scotland, the former Labour minister, espoused herself, as well as David Blunkett, who was, you know, uh, you know, pretty sound on this, actually, was someone who wanted to see mm. offshoring take place and said it was a 21st century uh, pr uh, solution to a global problem. So I think we can all accept that, you know, maybe if David Blunkett was back in charge, we could take Labour a bit more seriously. But we've got Yvette Cooper holds up signs saying refugees welcome. And Sir Keir Starmer, who seems to just want more boats to come, and have uh, uh, and basically have free movement via the back door. Yeah, well, it's worse than that because on the climate change front, there's a great story in the Sun this morning. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, that Ed Miliband or Ed Millipede, as I like to call him, uh, has got a guy working with him in the Shadow Climate Change Department uh, by the name of Tobias Garnet. Right now, he's a lefty human rights lawyer who used to be the legal brain behind Extinction Rebellion. And you kind of go, well, sorry. So they're taking money from Dale Vince, who's also bankrolling Just Stop Oil. They've now hired a bloke who used to advise Extinction Rebellion on how best to disrupt Britain. Um, I mean, who are they standing for, the Labour Party, these days? Mike, it's fair to say that you're very sound listeners and people in places like Stoke-on-Trent, North Kidsgrove and Talk are finding it very hard to swallow that Labour, when they're getting one and a half million pounds from someone who is the largest donor to Just Stop Oil, mm. they've got lawyers who literally assisted Extinction Rebellion are somehow not having their views on how to tackle climate change and also how to come up with a solution to net zero, uh, you know, as somehow not being pushed by the extremist lobby in this argument. I think Labour just need to come clean about what's really going on behind the scenes. I know Emily Band now likes his little ukulele and making weird songs outside. Uh, yeah, wind onshore, farms, yeah. One short wind farms, you know, I just... This, this this person could be a Secretary of State. It bloody terrifies me, Mike. Yeah. It's well, don't worry, terrifying. because he was a Secretary of State for the environment when he told everyone to buy diesel cars because they were better for the environment. And now look what's happened. Well, exactly. It's just more flip-flopping. It's Labour's favourite thing to do. I mean, it's thankfully for them, the beach season's coming up soon, so I'm sure they've already uh, bought them out. We'll have to make sure that we uh, go online to try and catch up with the orders that Keir Starmer's been making. And also, let's not forget, he also is a big fan of fences. He likes to sit on them he does. from the other so. B and Q are also in short supply because Labour's had to stock up on those as well in, in, for the, when they want to change their position with whichever way they think the wind blows. It's a remarkable feat, as you say, for Ed Miliband. You know, Mr. Go and buy a diesel to now uh, Mr. Let's go back to what? The Stone Age where we yeah. walk around and rely on horse and cart because somehow he thinks what we do in this country is going to save the world despite the fact that China, India, Russia, America are all ploughing on as normal, which means that ultimately whatever we do with our 1% impact on climate change is going to mean very little and all we'll end up doing is make people poorer i think we need to have some common sense in this right. mike you've been espousing for a long time mm. we all would like to find sustainable solutions to energy it's got to be done in a way yeah. where the technology is reliable and it actually works and the infrastructure and is it's affordable as well because presumably Miliband's ripped out uh, all the gas uh, cookers out of two of his kitchens back home in north london i don't know where he's going to cook his bacon sandwiches now well, exactly. I mean, like, he should give us a tour of his house to show us what a fine, upstanding citizen does. He wants to show the way forward. And, of course, if he doesn't want to do that, the answer is, why doesn't he? Yeah. And I'm sure his brother, you know, jet-setting all around America, 
you know, uh, virtue signaling about being a charity boss, paying himself yeah. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in salary. I'm sure, you know, they really understand what it's like for people in places like Stoke on Trent. Yeah, I know he's saving the poor $1 million at a time into his, uh, into his uh, skyrocket, as they say, uh, in some parts of London. Listen, uh, Jonathan, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Jonathan Gullis, MP uh, from Stoke on Trent North, talking common sense. That's the kind of common sense we need in this country. You know, stop the boats, stop the people coming here for a free ride and free Wi-Fi and a room to themselves and stop believing anything you hear from the Labour Party, who are what can only be said to be a bunch of charlatans. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is that time of the day uh, when we start to share with you the world of woke. What a wonderful world it is. The world uh, where nothing is as it seems, a world where everything has to be woke and a world where you cannot question the authority of the wokery or the wokists, right? Today, ladies and gentlemen, I've got something even more ridiculous than normal. Yesterday we had the giant cheese uh, and the cheese that was missing something, which we're not going to mention again because it upset quite a few people. Scientists are now warning that there is a massive problem on the way and it comes in the form of, wait for it, foam. That's right. Um, if you've got plants in your garden, you need to go and check them out immediately because if there's any foam on them, you might have to report them. According to the latest uh, guidance, right, and this comes from, of course, the government, warm weather is likely to make your plants excrete foam, apparently, because there's a deadly disease out there called Xyella. That's spelled X-Y-E-L-L-A, okay? Now, apparently this stuff destroys plants and is terribly deadly to plants, not to people. But scientists are asking people to report any sightings of this foam because if they do find any, they're going to come down to your garden and they're going to create an exclusion zone of five kilometres, right? So they're basically going to quarantine your plants. They're going to quarantine your garden and they're going to make it impossible for you to plant anything at all anywhere near it for five kilometres, right? It seems to me that they're getting a bit carried away with the lockdown. This is a plant lockdown we're talking about. It's a spittle bug that's apparently causing this foam. And it spreads through plants, usually from the end of May to the end of June. So it's now peak season for spotting this sort of foam. So look out for your spittle bugs, but more or less, even more carefully, I would say, look out for the people who are going to come for you because they're going to say they're coming for the garden they're coming for the foam, that they're coming for the plants. How on earth do you lock down a field? How do you lock down five kilometres? Unbelievable. Anyway, that's the world of woke for today. Beware of the spittle bug foam. Uh, it might do you some harm. Molly Kingsley's coming up very, very shortly. Found it for us, for them. And also, according to uh, some people in the government, a part-time terrorist. I'm saying that with my tongue in my cheek, by the way, in case anybody believes it. Ollie Whitfield Miacic, meanwhile, though, is waiting for us. He's down at uh, the courts with us uh, for Prince Harry and his hearing today. Um, Ollie, what you got for us? Oh, the Prince is now back in court. We had a short break earlier on, around 10 minutes. But before that, at 10.30, the Prince took to the sand. He was sworn in. Immediately when he was sworn in, his barrister, David Sherborne, the celebrity barrister, asked how the prince should be referred to. On first instance, is it your royal highness? And then thereafter, Prince Harry, to which the prince replied, yes. And then straight away into the cross-examination by Andrew Green Casey, who's representing the Mirror Group 
newspapers. What he is trying to do here is to poke holes in Prince Harry's claims and to find inaccuracies within his story. So in the written witness statement we see from Prince Harry that he says he was given his first phone when he went to Eton. He says that phone came from the institution there, I believe, referring to the royal family. Now, one of the stories that Prince Harry is complaining about dates back to 1996 when he says his phone was hacked, the mirror got information about a visit by his mother, Princess Diana, going to his school and that that information could have only been obtained illegally. The barrister representing the mirror's titles saying, well, if the phone was given to you in 1998 but the story was written in 1996, how could it be that your phone was hacked then? He also pointed to the fact that the Press Association had written a story a few days in advance of Princess Diana's visit and asked the prince whether he knew about that. He responded, I did not. Now, in his written statement, he talks about a variety of different things on Princess Diana's paranoia. I've always heard people refer to my mother as being paranoid, but she wasn't. She was fearful of what was actually happening to her, and now I know that I was the same. He's also hit out at the British government, in which he says, Our country is judged globally by the state of our press and our government, both of which I believe are at rock bottom. He then goes on to say, unfortunately, without proper press regulation, which the current government clearly have no appetite for because their friends in the press said so, it's only going to get worse. This is, remember, a case that Prince Harry has been waiting for for a long time. He sees the British tabloid press as being responsible for the death of his mother, for the breakdown of various personal relationships, including one with his former girlfriend, Chelsea Davey, and it's also led to him being paranoid and emotionally distressed. Thank you very much indeed, Ollie Whitfield Mircic, down there at the courts for us, watching Prince Harry uh, make enough fool of himself, it would seem. Um, nothing personal, mate, you know. But he keeps saying things like, I don't walk down the street. On Twitter, loads of pictures of him walking down the street. He says, my phone was hacked in 1996. Sorry, he didn't have a phone in 1996. Right, let's talk to Molly Kingsley. She knows a thing or two about phones. Uh, founder of Us For Them. She's on the front page of the Daily Telegraph this morning. Big friend of this show, uh, of course. Comes on regularly. Children's campaigner. Um, apparently, it turns out she was being spied on by the government. Unbelievable. Molly, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, mate. So, um, this is quite a story, isn't it? I mean, I didn't expect to see you on the front page of the Telegraph this morning, I must say. Um, no, but... I'm not sure I did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it's a very nice picture. And they say that uh, the government had you down as a kind of extremist, as some kind, almost practically a terrorist. I mean, what on earth were they thinking? Mm, well, I mean, I think this is a story that's been brewing for a while. So, you know, you might remember, Mike, in fact, weren't you in the Lister original disclosure? I think so, yeah. I think so. Yeah. So there was a Big Brother Watch report back in January, I believe, of this year. And mm. that really kicked off some of this. And I think, you know, that what that report revealed was that um, a very shady government organisation, secretive government organisation, had been spying yeah. um, not on foreign nationals, as it had been thought was the remit of this organisation, but actually on UK, you know, dissidents, mm. really. I would like to think I'm not a terrorist, but, you know. Um, but or a dissident, a to be honest. I mean, it's per I mean when, you, when you see a government calling people names like that, be just because they are questioning what they're doing. That's pretty scary. 
It's, it is really scary. And I think we have, you know, morphed into territory where exactly as you say, Mike, what's been happening is the government has been censoring um, views that are unpalatable mm. to it. And why are they unpalatable? Well, because, first of all, they're challenging the government's, you know, view, the government's narrative. But also, I think if you look at the people that were targeted, these are, you know, relatively prominent people. And I'm certainly not, you know, prominent in the way many of you guys are but you know they are prominent voices who were getting traction mm. so it's this combination of these unpalatable opinions who actually were having an impact and you know it looks from this and uh, you know one of one of the things that i think is quite worrying is we don't know the full extent mm. of this and we don't know the extent to which this spy activity actually translated to actual censorship right. but it does look like attempts have been made to suppress any number of us and do you think it, it was sort of involving things like um, surveillance or do you think it involved things just like monitoring or what, what, what's your concern about what it might have been? Well, we need answers. Mm. We don't know. I mean, the you know, if you look at the reports, all that that really tells us is we were being watched. Certainly, from the report that I've got, and I've actually got it here. Right. There's, there's two of them's page. You know, it's I don't know if you can see that, but it's yeah. it's pages in the screen. But it's mm. you know, it's five six pages. It's a lot of comments of articles that I and actually my colleague, you know, Bella Skinner, she's another us for them director gave to the press over a period of three years it was always our suspicion that something odd was going on and you know the, the problem is you sound paranoid when you even say this out loud mm. but myself my co-founder Liz Cole who I know you you know also know yeah. well we have conversations all the time you know do you think we're being spied on you know it, it, is that far-fetched mm. and you know, there were things that made you wonder so we had stories that we had ready for the press more than one occasion that obviously we'd be talking about on whatsapp we had you know whatsapp groups with colleagues with other people mm. these would be leaked to the press hours before we thought that we were going to mm. give them and you know there were things like this that happened a few times and we had had numerous conversations do we think our whatsapps are being man monitored now to be clear there's no suggestion of that at this point but it is not a far stretch is it it's to really go not. from no i think i think monitoring that's, that's... social media accounts publicly to private whatsapps and I, I you know i think we have to force those answers yeah no question because clearly there was much um kind of ang angst about the fact that not everybody was going along with what they wanted us to do and we see from the lockdown uh, report that came out yesterday in telegraph that an awful lot of the measures they brought in were pointless and an awful and we could have told them that i mean you know the idea that you walk into a pub and you can only sit down at a table for six um, and you can have 10 of those, but you can't have six tables of 10. You're going to go, sorry, what's the problem? You know, you have to have a scotch egg if you can have a drink. Doesn't matter. You know, you have to stand six feet away from the guy next to you in a supermarket. You know, all of that turns out to have been of no use whatsoever. But you're, oh, now, but you're now asking Twitter, aren't you, to see what, what was being done about your Twitter account? I mean, yeah, I think it would be really great if Elon Musk were able to disclose, you know, information he has, because this is so important. This, mm. You know, we, we effectively, so I think you're totally right, Mike, these, these rules made no sense. Individually, they were nonsense. And I think many of us called them out as nonsense. Yeah. Of course, some of the rules were worse than nonsense. Some of them were actively harmful. So school closures yeah. are a very good example of that. And I think if you look holistically at the collection of rules and the suppression of voices 
the cancellation of truth really during that time actually what we did adds up to a really worrying hole we effectively suspended democracy for a period of yeah. two years right we did that here we did that in america and i think anyone that cares about the pillars of democracy and obviously there is no more important pillar of democracy than free speech now has a duty i would say to put what they know you know to the extent they're legally able to mm. of course to put what they know in the public domain and i think it's really interesting i think what people like jay batashara have done in america where they had and um, they've taken legal action and that is how some of the disclosures about u.s censorship have come out I think that is very interesting. I would be very, very interested to explore whether there was that kind of option here. Because, you know, if the government isn't going to release details of who it monitored, for how long, which agencies were involved, did it extend to private communications mm. as well as public? You know, ideally, a government, the government would now come out and be very open and transparent about that. But is there any chance of that happening? Huh. I doubt well, it. Well, I mean, isn't it interesting that we're, we're seeing at the moment a kind of unwillingness by the government to give over their WhatsApp messages to the COVID inquiry? So, you know, maybe there's stuff in there that we might like to see. Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about that for a minute, because isn't that unbelievable, Mike? Yeah. I mean, the fact, first of all, the fact that government business can be done via WhatsApp, I find really quite incredible, mm. because, of course, it destroys accountability. You know, you can't scrutinise what you don't know about. And I think what is now coming to light during COVID is, you know, not only was there this, this very unorthodox situation where you effectively had government by this quad of ministers, mm. alongside that, you had these parallel WhatsApp structures. So, you know, how anyone is meant to scrutinise that? Well, of course, they're not meant to scrutinise, are they? And that's the whole point. Right. But I think layered on top of that, you know, you've now got suggestions of government ministers conducting business by disappearing WhatsApp. Mm. I mean, they're just sticking two fingers up to democracy. Right. And so, it's particularly I mean, ironic, I, given that they set up the inquiry. And now they're going, well, we're not going to give you that. That's not right. But how about this? This is from the government uh, today. The counter disinformation unit's purpose is to track narratives and trends using publicly available information online to protect public health and national security. Well, that's a bit of a wide, uh, wide open goal, isn't it? Uh, it has never tracked the activity of individuals and has a blanket ban on referring any content from journalists and MPs to social media platforms. And then it starts ranting on about 5G conspiracies and the Russians. I mean, you know, it's, it's a joke, isn't it? It's an absolute joke. It's a joke. And I, you know, I mean, I can't say that isn't true. I don't have any proof of that, but it doesn't. I mean, that doesn't chime very well with the pages of data that I have literally sitting no. there about me. So that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. About that. Well, listen, I mean, they can say whatever they want, but um, I'm afraid even I don't believe that you're a risk to national security, Molly. Thank you, Mike. That's good to hear. <laughs> and that, you know, there's a serious Feel free point to use that. You know, you know, the risk to natural national security was our own government. And, and that is and has been for two years. I firmly believe that, you know, there has been no more damaging policy in modern times mm. than lockdown. And actually, it is so tragic that uh, challenge, you know, not only from people like me, not even mainly from people mm. like me, but from challenge from the experts, actually, who yeah. might have been able to stop that madness wasn't allowed. Right. It is shocking. Absolutely shocking. Well, I'm sure it's not the last we'll, we'll hear of it and not the last we'll speak about it as well. Molly, thanks very much indeed. Molly Kingsley, their founder of Us For Them, um, on the surveillance unit of the government that was basically watching people to see what they were saying. Call that anything you like, but it's definitely censorship and it could be something a lot worse. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've had a very busy show today, so apologies to anyone who hasn't been able to get through on the phones. Uh, we will get to you tomorrow. I suspect we won't get to you today. Uh, a couple of great tweets that have come in, though. Uh, Mick says this, a little concerned about Chinese spies in Parliament, but major concerns, Ray Molly Kingsley and freedom of speech reminds me uh, of the Stasi. And a lot of you have got things to say um, about the Spittlebugs. Um, this one from Mandy. Mike, Spittlebugs have been around for as long as I can remember. It's on lavender plants everywhere and every year. We used to call it cuckoo spit. What ridiculous wokeness is this? And Sue in Cheshire says, great talk with Jonathan Gullis. As always, I love him. He should be Prime Minister. He talks so much sense and you just know he would get things done. Absolutely right. Now let's talk to Andrew Whitmarsh because we mentioned earlier in the show that it's the 69th anniversary of D-Day uh, and he is the curator at the uh, D-Day Museum in Portsmouth um, and the D-Day story uh, is something that you can see there uh, if you are able to get down there and have a look. Um, because, sorry, 79th anniversary, I should say. Um, the fading memory of D-Day is something that we can discuss and should discuss because obviously the, with every year that passes, fewer and fewer people um, have connections to it. Andrew, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Tell us a little bit about the, the D-Day Museum itself in Portsmouth. So the museum opened originally in 1984 and uh, for the 40th anniversary of D-Day and then in 2018 we opened reopened after a big refurbishment mm. so our, our displays were all refreshed from more modern audiences um, and we were um, uh, yeah have been operating since then. Okay and do you find that um, you know on anniversaries like this you, you tend to get more visits and you tend to get more interest in it? Yeah there's definitely a real upsurge of interest uh, particularly around the anniversary. We see this on website traffic, for example. We see this on visitors to the museum. But we, um, I mean, there's interest in D-Day throughout the year, so it isn't just on the 6th of June. Yeah. It definitely does uh, peak on the 6th of June. I mean, I, I took my, my teenage boys over to, to Normandy just around Easter time, and they hadn't, uh, to be honest, I hadn't actually physically walked on the beaches, and I walked on Omaha Beach, and it was quite quite a sort of emotional day, quite an emotional experience, because one of my sons is 18, and I said, you know, you would have been here. If it was 1944, and and, and you look at around at the um, the sort of the the surroundings and the land and everything that looks exactly the same as it would have looked then. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to do with being in the place where things happened, isn't there? So yeah. in, in helping to remember, and actually one of the things that we like to point out is that D-Day wasn't uh, wasn't something that only happened in in Normandy. Right. Obviously, that's where the troops landed, but where did they come from? They mm. came from many places along the south coast of England, including Portsmouth. The yeah. reason our museum is here is because this area played such a big part. So there's, there's uh, yeah, there's the sites in, in this country as well that have mm. connections to D-Day. Right. And so what sorts of things do you have in the museum when, when people come to look at it? Um, so we're, the museum tells the story of D-Day and the Battle of Normandy as a whole. So we're trying to uh, uh, not so not just looking from a British perspective, for example, from looking at the perspectives of the different allied nations involved, um, including a bit of the German perspective, including some of the perspective of the French civilians who, um, the, you know, the, the whole fighting was going on around their homes. Um, and then uh, the museum includes the Overlord Embroidery, which is an 83 metre long kind of modern day equivalent to the bio tapestry yeah. that was made in the around 1970 um, and is a really impressive work of art. Mm. But then the starting point for the visit is uh, really quite a new part of the museum. Um, it's LCT 7074, which is a, a landing craft tank or LCT, uh, a real landing craft, a 59 metre long landing craft that was actually there on D-Day. Um, landed troops on Gold Beach in Normandy on mm. the 7th of June and um, we display that in partnership with the National Museum of the Royal Navy but it's part of the 
the visit to the D-Day story here in Portsmouth. Right. And, and, and that's, sorry, just to expand on that, yeah. um, pe- uh, people, so it's an enormous uh, landing craft. Everyone who sees it says, wow, it's big. Uh, it has two tanks on board uh, as, as of the way it's um, for displaying, but mm. originally it had 10 tanks on board. So when you actually look around this landing craft, um, it's it's a bit like you were saying about visiting Normandy. You're you're treading on the very steel that would have had those tanks on on D-Day, and that the the troops and the sailors operating the aircraft would have been there on D-Day. So again, it's a connection to that moment in time, which, uh, as you're saying earlier, is now quite a long time ago. But it's a physical remains yes. um, that gives us a connection to to the, that distant, Absolutely. more distant past. Because I mean, at the moment, we've still got veterans who are visiting. I think today uh, over in France as a commemoration of the event itself. But as that becomes more difficult as, as the years go on, you know, it's more important than ever that, that your museum is, is there, really. Yeah, um, we'd certainly like to, to think so. We're helping continue to tell that story. And for many years, we did have veterans, Normandy veterans, coming regularly to the mm. museum to talk to visitors in holidays, etc. Right. And that was a definitely a highlight of people's visit because, um, it, you know, talking to someone who's actually there, you can ask them questions that... Um, you, you know, you don't get, get quite the same no. information from museum displays necessarily. No, yes. of course. Absolutely. Um, Andrew, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We've got to go, unfortunately. Andrew Whitmarsh there, curator of the D-Day Museum in Portsmouth. Worth, worth popping along if you get the chance. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.